Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. This is Anthony Anarino, author of Elite Sales Strategies, a guide to being one-up, creating value, and becoming truly consultative. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome back for the fourth time, Anthony Anarino to talk about his book, Elite Sales Strategies, a guide to being one-up, creating value, and becoming truly Consultative, published by Wiley. Anthony Anarino is a writer, a best-selling author, a speaker, a sales leader, and an entrepreneur. His primary focus is human effectiveness in sales, management, leadership, and personal and professional transformation. Anthony publishes a daily post on his blog, a practice he has kept since 2009. And interesting fact, he has a law degree and at one time was the lead singer for a hair metal band in L.A. Anthony, congratulations on Elite Sales Strategies and welcome back to the Marketing Book Podcast. I, I'm thrilled to be back for the fourth time, but I think that there's a couple people that have been invited five times. Am I right? Yes, and there are a couple authors that have been on seven times. Seven times. I, I know how competitive you are, but your friend, let's see, you've been on, uh, this will be your fourth the Five Timers Club includes Jeb Blunt, so you are nipping at his heels. Leading Growth uh, will be released in September, and then I'll match him. But he's oh. got a book coming out in June. So About selling the sales, uh, the price increase? Yes, you've seen it. I haven't, but I'm hoping that one shows up because they, con they contacted me about that, and I just said, are you kidding? I got this pitch email as if I didn't know who he was. <laughs> 
<laughs> kind of tickled me, and I thought, yeah, I've I, I've actually met him a couple times and uh, interviewed him, and I think one of his his interview the the three hundredth interview I did three hundredth episode, it went over two hours, which I believe is the only one that that did that. So wow, well, but you know, Jeb, I mean, you get him started. Come on, he's an Enneagram three, I think. What is that? Uh, an achiever, and uh, and their sin is vanity. Just okay. so you know. Well, well, I wouldn't know it from reading his book and having met him a, a, a few times. So, Anthony, I, I've met you a couple times. I feel like I could share with you my feelings. Can we talk about my feelings for a brief moment here? <laughs> I, was, I was hoping we would get to that. Yeah. So, reading your book was quite an experience, and I just, I'm filled with emotion. I'm a little nervous <laughs> because your book, it, it just blew my mind. And it reminded me a little bit of years ago when I read The Challenger Customer, and it just really helped to rewire a number of things. And it, I felt like, wow, I, all the arguments you make in your book, I couldn't refute. In other words, it made, it made perfect sense. So it was really very much on the cutting, cutting edge of sales. And I can tell you right every day, often a thousand word blog posts, it's sort of like a Seth Godin thing where he writes every single day. And everything that both of you write is very, very, very carefully constructed. So as a result, this book is 240 pages, but it was not a fast 240 page read. And I mean that in the the best way, because it really made me slow down and want to absorb (laughs) just about every paragraph. And I actually went through two pens marking this thing up, if that's in any, ind- any indication of, of, of what it was like. So we can't talk about everything that is in the book, obviously, because you don't have four hours to go through it. But I just really want to compliment you on this. And I think if anyone is in sales, they would really like this book, and even if they only read one sales book this year. But also, as I often like to talk about... There's always a first-time listener on the Marketing Book Podcast, and this may be the first episode someone's listening to. And if so, welcome. We're glad you're here. This is a book about sales. Why is a book about sales on the Marketing Book Podcast? And it's because I feel so strongly that marketers who don't understand sales, who don't spend time with their salespeople, who don't read sales books, are just not going to be very effective. And I say that because the best marketers have the deepest insights into sales. I'm in agreement. So I, as we go through here, it's going to be uh, – I'm going to pull out a few things that I think are particularly relevant for uh, content. And, and really, I, I think I sometimes get more content marketing ideas from reading sales books than from other kinds of books. Although a lot of the nonfiction books, they're all nonfiction on this show, they are more about how-to. But the, the sales books always seem to point me to the ideas that could be most effective at creating content that really breaks through. But I want to start with a very exciting story, which really sets the stage beautifully for the whole book, which is from page one. Anthony writes, I was standing at base camp one on Mount Everest, where the thinness of the air at 17,000 feet made it hard to breathe. I had no interest in climbing 12,000 more feet to scale the tallest mountain on earth, but I could not pass up the chance to take some pictures. Unfortunately, I'd suffered from altitude sickness during my entire visit to Tibet. 
My hands and arms often started tingling, like when your leg falls asleep during a long flight, and more than once, I woke up gasping for air. A week's worth of prescription medicine had not done me much good. The tingling was getting worse, and that day it had not stopped for hours. Three miles above sea level, I was becoming concerned. Soon, even the small hill we were climbing was too much for me to handle. My Sherpa, the guide who arranged and led our trip that day, asked me what was wrong. I breathlessly pushed out the words, I have altitude sickness. I'm tingling and it's hard to breathe. He replied, are you taking altitude medicine? I pulled the small box of pills out of my pocket and explained that my doctor prescribed them. The Sherpa took one look at the medicine and diagnosed me. The medicine is what's making you sick. Throw it away, then walk faster so you can get more air into your body. Walk faster? I can barely inch up this hill. But I knew I had to make a choice. Did I trust my guide or my doctor? Earlier in the day, I had visited my Sherpa's home. On the ground level, donkeys and chickens roamed around on a dirt floor, warmed by a smoke-belching potbelly stove. The outside of the house was covered in yak dung that had been shaped into patties and pressed against the outside walls, each one with an individual handprint of one of the Sherpa's family members. That detail struck me as I pondered my dilemma. I was being advised by a man whose house is covered in yak dung. I was positive that my physician, Dr. Zimmerman, an educated man, used a more well, conventional insulation to keep his house warm. But I also knew that my doctor had never been to the Himalayas, let alone Base Camp One. And while my Sherpa had no formal degrees, he makes a living guiding people up to Everest. After a long moment, I threw the medicine in a nearby trash can and started walking faster. My lungs burned, but the harder I worked to get up the hill, the better I started to feel. My Sherpa was right. I was getting more air into my lungs. Neither my education nor my doctor's years of medical school could match his knowledge and experience. That expertise put him in the one-up position, a more valuable resource than 100 degrees. So, Anthony Anarino, what is the one-up position? The one-up position means that, well, let me just go back and just say this. Whenever there's two people talking— One person generally is one up and the other person is generally one down. Now, we're not making a judgment about the individual. We're not trying to say that we're smarter than them or better looking than them or richer than them or anything like that. But when somebody does something every day and they have this knowledge and experience that they can see patterns and they can understand things that you couldn't understand without that experience, that person is generally one up. The person who doesn't make these decisions, doesn't have this knowledge, doesn't have the experience, is generally the person who is in the one down position. So if you're looking at a way to create better results, you generally want to talk to somebody who is one up and knows more than you because it's better for them to guide you down that path than for you to try to guide them. Just one other quote. You write, in this book, we're going to apply the idea of being one-up to selling more effectively by using the modern sales approach necessary to help your contacts make effective decisions about how they should change to produce better results. At Base Camp One, my Sherpa was one-up and I was one-down, not just because his knowledge and experience far exceeded mine, but because his advice created value for me. If my Sherpa needed help and guidance around a complex sale or sales leadership, 
I would be in the one-up position. Generally, the person who needs help and is willing to pay for it is in the one-down position. You are in the one-up position when your superior knowledge and experience benefits your clients, which makes your expertise invaluable. And yet, at the end of the book, you talk about how most salespeople are in the one-down position. Of course, your book very clearly shows how to get more one-up. But explain what you mean when you write that the one-down salesperson is a beggar. Yeah. What we do when we go out into the world as a salesperson is we try to create new opportunities. And the way that we create those new opportunities is with a conversation about why the client should change, how they should change, how they're going to make those decisions. But if you can't do that, then what you really do is you start talking about your product, you start talking about your company, you start trying to get credibility outside of the conversation that you're in. And that's what makes somebody a beggar. They're just begging for an opportunity to say, you have this problem, I have the solution, my solution can solve your problem. But that's too far ahead of the client's decision making. So what you have to do is slow down and give people the insights that you have. You have to create value for them by teaching them how to make those decisions. And the word consultative, you said consultative, but I say consultative. I don't know which one of us is right. We're going to have to look at the Oxford to figure that out. But either way, whether you're consultative or consultative, what it means is I'm going to give you good counsel. I'm going to give you good advice, and I'm going to recommend how we go about doing this. That's something that only a person that's one up can do. When somebody's one down, they're just begging for an opportunity so they can say, you have this pain, my solution can solve it. But that's not really consultative. That's just pitching your product. Yes, I think this one up, one down thing, it's, it's stuck for good. <laughs> yeah, I really, and it, it, you even talk about how, well, we'll talk about this in a minute, but like even just this mindless bonding and rapport that happens before a, a meeting that doesn't. That's not what you should be doing. But let's step back for a minute, at, perhaps to explain that. You write that professional selling has evolved over the past 75 years or so, and using the modern sales approach is the best way to show that you're one up. Despite this, two older approaches, legacy laggard and legacy solutions are still practiced. Can you take us down history lane and help people identify what those are and, and which ones they're probably still using? The first one we call legacy laggards. And the reason we call them that is because the approach that they're using goes all the way back to the year that I was born, 1967, 54 years ago, a very, very long time, almost 55 years ago, with something like Sandler. And David Sandler was doing exactly what was right for the late 1960s. So that's what he did. So it's a lot of fear-based approaches. Don't share any insights with your client, because if you do, they'll steal them and give them to your competitor. Don't talk about price because you might scare them away. All of these kind of fear-based approaches were probably necessary at that time, and that's why they evolved. One of the things that Sandler brought to the conversation was there has to be some sort of pain or a problem for somebody to decide to change. Now, I'll argue against that later on, but that's what really got us to solution selling where we started to say, we have to do something more than just pitch our product or our service, even if we decide we're going to call it a solution, even though it's a product or a service normally. 
When we got to that, we started creating more value because we were doing a deeper discovery to find out how we can make something work for our clients. So that moved us up. If you want to pick a date on that, I'll go with 1988 with Neil Rackham spin selling. Mm -hmm. So we'll call that 34 years. And I would just ask you, if you're listening to this, has much changed in the last, say, 34 years or so? Have you noticed anything, you know, in the environment where you you realize that it's not quite the same as it was before uh, 1988? It's a very, very different time. And so people have different needs. They have different challenges. They're in a different environment. I would say one that's way more competitive more people piling into now technological ways of doing some of the things that we've done. There's tons of alternatives and it's a confusing time for people right now. While we're, we're having this conversation, we've got uh, a, a war in Ukraine uh, with the Russians. We've got 8.5% uh, inflation. We found out that the producer price index yesterday was 11%. I mean, so you have all these things and people can't make sense of their environment. So withholding your insights, withholding your knowledge, withholding all the things that you could do to help somebody understand their environment and then adapt to it is the right thing to do for this time that we're in right now. And since you mentioned Challenger, this is my book that I would say is the practitioner's version of a Challenger sale. So Mm. it's not a research book. It's a book that all the research came from my own experience selling Uh, starting when I was 15 and I made my first cold call. So this is what a practitioner would write and tell you what to do. And so that's the book that I wrote. Do you think that a lot of the world of buying and selling was accelerated by the lockdown? Yeah. I mean, the lockdown wasn't good. Uh, We still have supply chain issues. There's a whole bunch of complicated reasons that that's true that we probably shouldn't talk about here because some of it's uh, political and we don't need to poke that bear right now at all do we everybody's already divisive exactly exactly and that's sometimes when a guest starts talking about politics i actually edit that out um just because yeah, good. There's, there's other podcasts for that but i think you know like the the way that people buy the way that people sell as i read through your book i am it's like i have more of a heightened awareness of what what's working what's not working and i just think that some of those uh, so many of the things that you write about are probably even more important, or maybe more people will recognize now versus two years ago. I think so too. Yeah. I think so too. Everything's been heightened, right? Because of these things. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But The traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called all-inclusive TV, how booming brands are reimagining TV advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. 
For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. For the salespeople listening, let's talk about discovery calls. And you talk about how this major shift is best illustrated by the idea of discovery. So perhaps you could you know, remind folks of what discovery was, you know, like trying to find a problem versus talking about the problem you already know they have. Yeah. I mean, this is my favorite thing to talk about, Doug. So I appreciate this one. It's a softball for me. But my favorite thing to do with salespeople is to explain to them that they're differentiating exactly like everyone else in their industry. And Mm -hmm. so if you're differentiating in the same way that everybody else is trying to differentiate, you're not differentiating. (laughs) You're doing the same thing everybody else is doing. So you all look like lemmings, like you're all doing the same thing in a line, just walking through and jumping off the edge of the cliff. When you start out with rapport, let me tell you about my company. Let me tell you about our legendary CEO, Doug. You can't believe it. What a story. Mm-hmm. I'm going to show you. Yeah, that's the, that's the right answer. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, uh, are you a golfer? Oh, I see you have a sailboat uh, picture on the wall. Yeah. Then you get to your trophy cabinet, which is a bunch of logos on a slide. And then you say, we have these solutions and we're helping people just like you with these types of problems. What's keeping you up at night? Now, let's say that was salesperson A. And they did that on Tuesday. On Thursday, another salesperson comes in and has the exact same conversation, literally in the exact same order. And you would go back and ask that person who had to sit through both of those presentations, what was the difference between salesperson A and salesperson B? And the answer will be salesperson A was taller with lighter hair (laughs) and salesperson B had a red logo. Uh, And that's all they'll remember. There was no value creation in that conversation at all. And that's the problem with discovery today is that we think it's about eliciting a problem. And I had somebody on LinkedIn yesterday or the day before say, so you're saying we should already know what their problems are. So now it's monolithic and all clients have one problem. And I said, no, but. (laughs) Sounds like they didn't read your book. Not yet. (laughs) But. When you think about this, like if I walk in and I'm saying, Doug, what kind of problems you have? And you go, you know what? Jimmy really has a bad attitude right now. Like he's, I don't even know what's wrong with this guy or what to do with him. And we need more parking spaces. There's not enough parking for our people. And you're like, well, I can't help with any of those problems. Well, that's because you already know what problems they have, or you should, because you do this every single day Mm -hmm. and you help people get these results every single day. So you don't need to ask them what their problems are. You can start a conversation explaining the factors and the forces that are actually causing those problems in the first place so you can give them some clarity about where they are right now and start helping them understand what they need to do to succeed in this type of environment. That's consultative. And when you say, let me tell you about my company, that is anti-consultative. It's exactly the opposite of what you would do. Yeah, you mentioned a simple test to determine if you are one down or not is, does the client benefit from the conversation more than you do? That's the bar. Easy to say, hard to do. Well, for a lot of people. So well, let's talk a little, just a little bit more about this, uh, the sales conversation. I was interesting, you said the sales conversation is really your only vehicle for value 
creation. Why do you say that of all the strategies in, in your book, that is the most important? Well, what else do you have? I mean, it, it's kind of like a date, right? So, well, somebody's going to say, "Oh, I can talk about my products or services." How you know? Again, talking about themselves. No, those are nouns. They're just <laughs> talking about nouns. Like, there's there's our company. There's our CEO. Here's our product. They can't experience any of the value of your product until they buy it. Everything that you're talking about is a hypothetical. So your best your best vehicle for getting to the point where they say, I prefer to buy from Doug. And here's why. He helped me understand this problem way better than I knew beforehand. Mm -hmm. I have a much better view of what I need to do and how I need to do it. And I've seen things about our business now that I couldn't see before, but now I can see these things. And he's the person I want to buy from because. Now, if you say, Product X has this feature and this benefit and this advantage. What you're doing is you're saying, my product is the best product and you should buy it. My company is the best product and you should buy from us. Just like everybody else says. Mm -hmm. You say the same thing that they say. Our product's great. It has features and benefits and our company's wonderful. You're going to love working with us. No one can figure out how to differentiate that. You're all doing exactly the same thing. So you have to stop doing the same thing if you want to differentiate, if you want to create a preference, and if you want to sell more, then you have to deliver value to the client in the only vehicle we have, which is the sales conversation. There's no other vehicle available to us. You could tell them the product's great, but they can't determine whether that's true or not because they're not using it. If you want them to use it, then you have to have a conversation that leads them to buy. Yes. And before we move on, I've just got to... Not a lot of people know that Anthony Anarito's brother is a stand-up comedian, and I've actually seen him perform. And it was at the same conference where I saw you speak about the question I asked you about earlier, where you said, oh, that's one of my favorite topics. <laughs> it's still it's still in my head. But in the book, you have this, uh, like, like rules, the, ru- the new rules. And a couple of them are, and again, this applies to content, folks. One, you may not mention your company's name. And then mm. you go on, very funny here, you'll be immediately escorted out of the building if you do. Two, you must not mention any of your clients, including any testimonials. If you do, big bodyguards are going to pick you up by your arms and <laughs> escort you out. You are prohibited from mentioning your product, your service, or your solution. Number four, any attempt to develop rapport with your contact is a violation that will end your meeting and will bar you from ever speaking to the contact again. And five, you may ask no questions that elicit your client's dissatisfaction, their pain points, or their hot buttons. A single question about what's keeping them up at night will end the meeting, the trap door underneath your chair will open, and you will find yourself in the underground parking garage. And the last one is you only have 25 minutes. So uh, you made it real clear. And I thought the part about what's keeping them up at night, I think that's just going to that's going to blow a lot of people away for all the right reasons. I hope so. Uh, We've done this in a number of workshops now, and it turns out that the younger the person is that plays this game with me, the better they do. Oh, really? That's great. Yeah, because they're not not tied to the problem, pain, um, solution thing that we've done for a long time. So because they're free of that, they can actually play. Now, I've seen sometimes they want to swerve into the problem, uh, but they catch themselves. Uh 
And and the longer they've been selling, the harder this is for them because I just took away everything that you would do <laughs> right. in a legacy approach. So you can't do any of those things. So what are you left with? I mean, that's the question. So what would you talk about if you're not allowed to talk about any of these things? Well, that leads me into uh, wanting to talk about insights and information disparity. There are still probably a lot, you know better than me, a lot of salespeople that are providing information that somebody could get elsewhere. Like the website. Yeah, exactly. And so let me quote, you say, there are some who believe the internet has eliminated the information disparity between the salesperson and their client. This is incorrect as your clients need more information than ever. However, it's a different kind of information. Talk about that. Yeah, this leads sort of to the the concept of sense making. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to be an expert in your field, and you're supposed to be the one that's guiding the client because you're one up and you do it every day. You've got great knowledge, great experience, and you can walk in if you have this. If you're one up, you walk in, you can see the pattern before your conscious mind even recognizes it. Mm-hmm. You've done this so many times, you know. That's how the Sherpa looked at me and knew what was wrong. He mm-hmm. looked because he's seen it before many times. So th- that's one of the things. But when they don't understand what's going on in the environment, then they get paralyzed. And you have to explain to them, this is what's going on. Here are some of the things that you're going to be challenged with now or very soon in the future. And here's how you need to think about these things. Here's some of the things that you might be able to do to make a difference right now. And so you have to become a different kind of a salesperson than we were in the past. So it's not about the problem. It's not about the pain. It's about what do they need to do to produce better results. And that's a different kind of consultation. If every time you decide that you're consultative is because you said, I can probably fill this, I can take care of this problem for you with my solution. That's not consultative. So now you have to go somewhere else and say, where do I give them information that they're unaware of? And look, when you do something every day and you have these many different experiences, you have to share those experiences in a way where you transfer your one-upness to your one-down client so that they're no longer one-down. And what you're trying to do is help them make the decision that you would make if they asked you to make the decision for them. The... Things that have changed in sales, uh, I'll pick out one, you know, like the information that people can gather. In the past, like when my dad wanted to buy a car, he had to go to the dealership to get the information. You know, A couple of years ago, right. my wife, it was the last place she went. <laughs> she got all the information she needed. So that's changed. But what I'm wondering about is the approach you outline here, I don't see how that's going to change because of the uncertainty that is out there with this uh, abundance of data. You're 54. Do you think as long as you're in this line of work, you're going to be talking about some of these same things or, or is some of this going to go away? I'm going to give this maybe 20 years, um, <laughs> okay. pro- probably 20 years. We're, we're certainly going to be in a, a tough situation for some time. I'm, I'm certain of that. But eventually this will become a legacy approach. I mean, it will. The, the environment will keep changing, will keep evolving. Uh, new things are going to happen, just like the internet showed up one day, then e-commerce showed up one day, then the mm-hmm. iPhone showed up one day. And uh, if you've not read Morgan Housel's book on the psychology of money, my favorite quote there is, things that have never happened, happen all the time. <laughs> I love it. Get used to it, folks. So on page 76, 
this, uh, let's see, this is um, a chapter on supporting client discovery. You write about 18 things you can help your clients to discover. Okay, so it's, it's uh, one of the other uh, threads in the book is it's important to help them to self-discover or, or discover rather than just telling it to them, if I understand that correctly. And so these, these are 18 things you can help your clients to discover. And the thing I wanted to say here is that, well, I'll give you an example. The first one is their assumptions are outdated. Number two, uh, the nature of their mistakes or what has changed and why. Uh, and, and the better results available to them. As you know, as a marketing guy, I read through this, and I'm thinking, these are the exact kind of things that I would sometimes be talking about with clients. And you give examples in the book because you're selling sales training and service and consultation about some of the things that you're uh, explaining to them about the, the changing nature of how people buy. But all 18 of these are great content topics for whatever industry people are in. Like uh, number 18, how best to pursue change. Number 17, what is not working and why? I just thought this was solid gold for somebody who's trying to create content for their website and for the sales team to use uh, that could really, really make a, a big difference. When you think about just even the first one, so I sell, let's say, ERP, and you buy it every 15 years. And 15 years ago when you bought it, you had a certain set of assumptions that you were using. And now 15 years has gone by. I can't let you try to make that decision with the assumptions that you made 15 years ago. That's a century in tech, right? Mm -hmm. It's a century. So I need to give you an update to your assumptions because I need you to understand that what you used to know is now outdated and there's new information that's going to allow you to make a better decision. That feels to me like the right thing to do as a consultative salesperson is to make sure that the assumptions that they're using to make a decision are the right assumptions in the first place. Otherwise, if they don't have a good set of assumptions, they're going to make decisions that are going to be out of context and they'll end up hurting themselves and having to rebuy in the future and they'll suffer buyer's remorse and they'll be angry at the company that sold this to them because they allowed them to make this decision without really knowing how to make it. So... I think what we're doing in discovery now, instead of me being the one that's getting all the information from you, the person who happens to be one down and who has false assumptions and makes mistakes and have all kinds of other challenges, I need to help you discover the things that you need to know so you can make the best decision. So there's this interplay between I'm transferring my one-upness to you and you know way more about your business and your industry than I do. So you have to transfer your one-upness to my one-down because I don't work in your, your industry every day. I help people in your industry, but I don't know it like you do. So I think that the change now is that you have to help the client discover what they need to know to make the best decision and get the best results. Absolutely. Let me just uh, add to that from page 91. It's now easy for clients to find information about your company and your products, but much harder for your contacts to make sense of their world, pursue solutions to their problems, and help other stakeholders recognize the need to change so it creates alignment about what they should do. So these subjects you tackle are amazing, particularly about change. And did you say you're working on a book about change? I'm working on a book. Uh, well, I already wrote it. It's called Leading Growth. 
There will oh. be a book about change eventually. Oh my goodness. I, I, it's like you scaled Everest with the chapter on change because I can't think of anything that's more difficult but uh, more effective for a, a really good salesperson to do. Um, now, you mentioned LinkedIn a few minutes ago, and you wrote, let's see, I think it's on page 105, for those who already have the book and are following along at home, you wrote, a friend wrote a LinkedIn post that included the statement, salespeople need to sell the way buyers want to buy. I was admittedly triggered and fired off a comment condemning his idea as incredibly dangerous and largely responsible for poor B2B results. I, I First off, I can't imagine cool, calm, collected Anthony Anarino ever getting triggered, but take us take us there. Why, why is that a problem? Why is that expression perhaps misunderstood in light of your book? Well, the context is really, really important. So when you tell a salesperson, you need to sell the way the buyer wants to buy, and then you say, uh, hey, Doug, we're going to need to bring in the rest of your team so that they can contribute to what the solution is going to look like at the end. And we're going to need to make sure that we get their consensus. And you say, no, I'll be the one that makes the decision. Mm-hmm. And you go, well, they said they're going to be the one that makes the decision. I'm out of here. Like, I'll wait until they make the decision. That's a horrible thing to do. It's, it's horrible. So if you do this, you're going to have a very transactional relationship with your client. You're not going to be leading them. You're not going to be giving them the advice that they need. And you're certainly not going to be facilitating a buyer's journey that they take every 10 years or something like that. It just doesn't make any sense. So that argument went on for a long time until uh, my friend who actually wrote the thing that caused me to be triggered, as triggered as I was, because I was triggered. And, uh, and he said, I didn't mean it that way. Like, I agree with you. You're, you're right. But he believes that buyers have different needs now like I do, mm-hmm. but he didn't say that. And so when you say, buy the way the seller or, the, or sell the way the buyer wants you to sell, that's never going to be good for you. You have to do what's right, not what's easy. And you have to help them do what's right and not what's, what's easy for them either. It's horrible to try to build consensus. If you have more than one child and you decide to go to dinner with your family, uh, you'll have four children in seven different places that they want to eat. Like you can't get anything done. And it's the same in business. People have incentives. They have preferences. Some of them are trying to climb up the hierarchy. It's very difficult, but you still have to do it. Yeah, you're right that if all you do is take or follow your client's orders, you can't create value for them. So again, I I hope we're getting lots of uh, uh, attention from the uh, (laughs) salespeople listening to this. Let's let's go into another one that's going to maybe throw off some of the marketers, but some page 109 where you say the final, excuse me, the first stage of the buyer's journey is not awareness. You must reject the one down belief that your client has to suffer negative consequences before you can help. It's like uh, I would come around and say, Doug, uh, that was a terrible mistake you made. You shouldn't have made it. It cost you way too much money, and now you have a bigger problem than you had before. I, people say that to me every day, yeah, but <laughs> it's usually family members. <laughs> and then what, what Doug should say back is something like, why didn't you tell me about this before it happened, ah, trusted advisor? Uh-huh. Why didn't you come and interrupt me in my day to tell me, 
something has changed on the outside world. It's harder for you to get these results. You need to do something about it now. If you want to be one up and if you want to be a trusted advisor, all salespeople say they want to be a trusted advisor. Right. Then I used to say you only need two things, trust and advice. But now (laughs) I would say trust, advice, and pro be proactive. Like if you're not proactive with it, you're not a trusted advisor. Yes. You got to go do it before people get harmed. I'm laughing extra hard because I remember now you had that in a keynote. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And if it sounds like I've been stalking Anthony over the years, I have. I, I, I plead guilty that. It's just the part where you're sitting in the driveway overnight <laughs> that really yeah. bothers me. That's you the know, part that I get a little unnerved. And I hear that again. I hear that a lot from uh, the authors that I interview. And as a matter of fact, in uh, the Spring of 2020, I was due to go to Columbus, Ohio, and I was going to give a talk at a conference there on the Ohio State University, and I even bought, I like wearing bow ties, I had the Ohio State uh, colors in my bow tie, and you didn't know this, Anthony, but I was actually going to stay at your house or try to stay at your house. I was going to just show up and see see how that went. And, you know, so I'm still looking for opportunities to, to come to Columbus. So, uh, you know, just uh, put, just put do, that out we there. Got, we've got a guest room for you. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, just to, to add, uh, to conclude that part, you say the largest percentage of companies who you call on will be those who are not yet compelled to change, even though they probably should be, which I found rather encouraging. You, you got to go let these folks know that they're maybe standing on an anthill or they're about to step on a landmine. And I noticed you use that landmine bit uh, in a couple places. So let's go to chapter seven, talk about building your uh, one-upness. And let me ask you another question, Anthony Anarino. Do you know what Napoleon Bonaparte and I have in common? <laughs> Artillery. Yes! Well, I was also once uh, the emperor of France, which will come as a surprise to a lot of my uh, beloved listeners in France. But yes, in our youth, he and I were both uh, artillery officers. That's probably the only other thing we have in common. But you start with a quote from Napoleon Bonaparte that I learned uh, in my youth at artillery school, God fights on the side with the best artillery. You go on to write, your insights comprise a large part of your artillery, along with your ability to transfer them to the decision makers and decision shapers you serve. And before we talk about that, I I still want to stay back in history. I just want to ask you about this other thing, because we want to talk about some other people from history that I I hope I don't have anything in common with. You write, if I had to rank the worst villains in human history, the list would include Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot the inventor of email, and whoever decided we should start client conversations with, quote, why us? Explain. That's that's a pretty good list, don't you think? (laughs) Well, I would probably put the why us at the beginning, particularly after reading your book. I I would put it up there, too. I I think that we have a problem. Uh, First off, email's a real problem for most people, and now we've tried to weaponize it with automation. Yes. Not good for salespeople. Not good for people that get uh, the average number of emails a business person gets a day is 127. If you multiply that by three, that's six and a half hours. If if you have three minutes for each email that you get, this is why no one looks at your emails anymore. Mm-hmm. If you're a salesperson, and you say uh, it's not a good idea to start your prospecting with email. Yeah, start with a phone. Mm-hmm. That's that's a place to ask. But I would tell you why I think that starting with why us is terrible is because it's a, it's a terrible first date 
You're supposed to be interested in the other person. You're supposed to be helping guide them. And when you start trying to get credibility in a way that isn't going to get you credibility, I mean, you can say my company's great. You can say we have all these clients. They're judging the salesperson on the value that they create for them in that particular conversation. Mm -hmm. If you create value in a conversation, you will probably have an easy time getting another meeting where you can create even greater value. If you don't create any value, you're going to get what Rackham called a continuation. And they're going to say, Doug, that was incredible. I'm so glad to meet you. Why don't you reach out to me and say 2027 or 2028? <laughs> and then and, uh, I'd love to have a talk with you then. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> that reminds me of uh, also of uh, James Muir's book, The uh, the Perfect Close, where he talks about continuations versus advancements. So I thought it was uh, really helpful for me anyway, when you, again, back to the content people could be creating, talking about assumptions that your customers have. I, my sense is that a lot of sales and marketing folks aren't even dialed into what the current assumptions are. You write, the reason you struggle to help your clients change is not because they aren't smart. It's because you didn't do the work of addressing and replacing their assumptions. And that also brought to mind, well, you know, the uh, sales team leads leaves a meeting with a prospect and they go, yeah, uh, we think it went pretty well. They, they We answered all their questions. And then you go to the prospects and they go, yeah, that was a waste of our time. Where instead, if they had been a little more dialed into the assumptions, that's a great opportunity to lead them and demonstrate that you really do understand them. When I was in temporary staffing in, let's say, 2001, right in that neighborhood, I had a client who refused to raise their pay rate for their temporary employees. And the pay rate had fallen so far behind what they paid and so far behind what their market paid that we were struggling to get them the results. And in a desperate, I mean, I, I quote Gary Klein a lot in here because Gary mm -hmm. Klein's amazing. But one of the things that causes you to have the aha moment is complete and total desperation. And that's what happened to me. I couldn't get them to change the pay rate. And the person I was working with was a full bird colonel from Vietnam. And he had a what we would call a traditional value system. So I'm giving you an opportunity. You should accept the opportunity because you might have a chance to do better working here in the future. And Was I this the chief operating officer that you flew back from New York? No, no, oh, that no, no. Different story? Okay. No, this guy was a lot nicer than that guy. Even okay. though he was a full bird colonel from world, you wouldn't expect a, a Vietnam vet, a full bird colonel to be in HR anyway. Like you, that's already an anomaly. Anyway, he was delightful. And- to figure out how to change their assumptions, I built a slide deck that was 100 slides long. Now, repetitive, back and forth between different themes, not particularly well thought out, but just being desperate, I thought, I'm going to show them all the data, all of it. I'm going to show them against each of their competitors in the neighborhood. I'm going to show it against the market itself. I'm going to show them how few people are actually on unemployment and just uh, everything I could show them, including how much money someone made when they were just on federal and state uh, welfare. And it turns out that that was $3 more than they were paying. And you could make more money literally staying at home. So I bludgeoned them, Doug, with data for uh, a full hour. 
at the end of the hour, Monty Pickens was the guy's name. Monty said, uh, that was a really good briefing. I didn't think I was, I, I didn't think that I was doing a briefing. I thought I was prosecuting their assumptions. That's what I thought I was doing. I was trying to make sure they understand <laughs> none of what you believe is true. And I was arguing like a lawyer. Like yes. I'm going to. Was this after you had a law degree? No. <laughs> or, <I> think, <laughs> but, the, but I'm prosecuting their beliefs. Uh huh. And at the end of it, he said, that was really good. That was a great briefing. And he said, could I have a copy of that slide deck? No one had ever asked me for my why us slide deck. Ah. And, he, and, and I thought, well, why do you need the slide deck? No one's ever asked for a slide deck before. So it's an anomaly for me. And he said, I have to brief our senior leaders this afternoon. And it'd be really handy to have that. And I said, okay, I'll give it to you. And he said, take your logo off first. And I was like, oh my gosh, I did his homework. I don't even get a credit. I get no credit at all. And I gave it to him anyway. We were working together for a number of years. And at three o'clock that afternoon, he called and gave me $2 million to raise pay rates across his entire temporary staffing. And I, I would love to tell you, Doug, that I was smart enough to recognize how powerful what I did was, but it didn't. <laughs> uh, I, I, it didn't. It didn't do that for me. Instead, I went to Cincinnati maybe a couple weeks later. And I sat down with a guy and I reached in to get my laptop out where I was going to show him my YS slide deck. And he said, put the laptop back in your bag. You don't need it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember that. And, and, and I said, well, there's a lot of things on here that you're going to want to see. And he goes, nope, I got a list of questions. If you answer them correctly, we'll probably do business with you. If you don't, then we won't. Oh, it and had, said, it had, sorry. It had the, same facts and figures you'd shared with no uh, the colonel i had the why us oh okay 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 he didn't know that though he just didn't want to see the slide deck at all because well, he'd seen probably 50 of them oh. from all your competitors absolutely there was no reason to see it so he yeah. wanted to have a conversation uh-huh. maybe two weeks three weeks after that i got a call from a friend of mine who said you won't believe what happened i went into the the conference room where I was going to present and I put the laptop on the stand and I plugged it in. And the senior leader said, if you open that laptop, I'm going to throw you out of here. <laughs> and I'm like, people hate slide decks. I didn't know, but uh, they don't particularly hate slide decks. They just hate why us. And well, it's they hate not having their time them. wasted. And they hate not having any value. Yes. Right. That's right. So it wasn't the slide deck. It was the content and the content is the conversation. Mm-hmm. So once I started to catch on and I started just briefing people when I walked in, the first thing I would do is give them a brief. This is what the a market looks like. And I would love to tell you I was smart enough to know what I was doing, but I wasn't. Uh, it took a long time for me to realize when you put somebody in the context. So I'm I'm taking your assumptions. I'm removing them. I'm replacing them with what's true right now. Now you can't have the conversation out of the context because you now know it. You've just seen it. You've just witnessed it. Now you're looking at this and you're going, if this is true, then what do I have to do now? And that changed it for me. And eventually I figured out there was really no reason to do anything else. There's no reason to do why us. You just have to prove it. Mm-hmm. You walk in and you have a great conversation. You create value and you've already proven that you're the right person to buy from. So as I mentioned earlier, chapter nine really blew me away just because it was about change, which I think is horrifying to people. And I completely understand why people don't want to change. And 
but you push ahead and show how to help guide your clients to change, which I thought was just masterful. Rather than getting into all the different ways that you can help guide your client, I was wondering if you could talk about one thing from page 171 where you say there may be no greater tool for improving your sales effectiveness uh, than creating a sense of urgency. Yeah. How, how, talk about how to create a sense of urgency or how to help reveal a sense of urgency. One of the things that we get wrong uh, in the why us in the legacy approaches is that we think that we have to give them certainty that they're going to be able to get the results that they need in the future. That's exactly backwards. It's exactly backwards. They haven't already committed to change and you're six, you're, you're sort of assuming that they're already ready to change. They just need to find the right person to buy from. That's not true. The best thing that you can do is to create certainty of negative consequences. So one of the reasons you do a briefing and one of the reasons you teach people that they have these forces and factors and trends working against them is so that you can show them if you don't change, there will be negative consequences. Mm -hmm. And then once they have the certainty that there's negative consequences, they become uncertain again. Well, what am I supposed to do? Now I can tell you, these are the things that you need to do to have certainty of positive outcomes. And then you can do the YS at the very, very end if you need to. You might not need to at all. If you get this right and you create enough value, people already know who they're going to buy from. Generally, Doug, we know you win in discovery. That first meeting, if you don't create value, you're lost. You probably lost right there and then. Right. That's why you say it's so important. Are, you're also talking about that model that's in the book, and I can't remember exactly where, but it, could you talk about that? You say normally people go in the reverse order, where it's uh, it's four parts. Yeah, it's the, it's the certainty sequence. Yes. I'm uncertain. It's, I'm uncertain. Then I have to get certainty of negative consequences. And then I'm uncertain again. And now I need certainty of positive outcomes if I make these changes. And that, that's the order that it tends to go in. But the approach is often um, talking about the outcomes first? Yeah, talking about the positive outcomes. Like, we can take care of this for you. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be unicorns and rainbows if you just hire us. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's great. That's great. So I want to talk about this uh, concept of triangulation, which I remember from uh, – the political days, and certainly you, you referenced there were some politicians that had used this, but it's, if this sounds too good to be true, uh, just wait till he explains how you do it. You become far more valuable to your potential client when you can give them an objective assessment of their choices and explain the rules of the game to them, making you not just a player, but a commentator and a referee rolled into one. So talk about trashing the models, and I don't mean like... Uh, people who are models who are out getting uh, drinking. Talk about <laughs> trashing the models. Well, this is probably one of the most important things that people could learn how to do to differentiate. And what you do, um, am I allowed to mention the president? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah okay. but let me, let me so, before you do, there was only one part in the book where you talked about politics and you said, you know, I'm not really interested in politics, but I'm going to explain this because this is what happened in a presidential election. And it's just like when David Merriman Scott, every four years, he writes about what the different presidential candidates are doing in the United States strictly from a marketing or selling standpoint. He's not, yeah. <laughs> and he's real clear. And yet someone's always saying, what are you going to talk about politics for? So, yes, please. 
This is, is, you don't really need to be political to understand this, but when Clinton was running, he hired a guy named Dick Morris to advise him. And what they were trying to do was get sort of all the rumors about Clinton out of the way in 1992 so he could have a clean run in 1996. But Morris realized, like, they didn't have to do that. Like, they could just go ahead and win this time right now because you had Perot there. And what he figured out was, Clinton realized that the Democrats were too weak on crime and that, let's say, uh, suburban women with children were unhappy with crime. And at the same time, he realized the Republicans are not spending enough on social things that are going to be important for the development of people and our country. So what Dick Morris taught Clinton to do was to go up above the playing field. So he's not a participant in the election anymore. He's all the things that you said. He's the referee. He's the umpire. He's the one that's going to tell you what's good and right and true as the moral authority. And it worked beautifully for him because he was able to say, here's what's really good about the Republicans. And here's where they're not right. And here's what's really good about the Democrats. And here's where they're wrong. And I'm going to take care of all these things as the president. And it worked perfectly for him. And it will work perfectly for you if you execute it correctly and in the right order. A lot of things in this book, Doug, uh, happen to be some uh, way influenced by the sequence and when you have certain conversations. And this is one of them. So you don't want to trash your competitor and you never want to say their name out loud Mm -hmm. because you just don't ever need to say anything bad about your competition. I, I say only nice things about my competition. But... When it comes to models, I have preferences. So I'm going to, first, I'm going to sing the praise of the model. I'm going to say that model is a, a good model. It gives you the lowest possible price, even though you're going to have to make concessions around customer service and delivery times, and you'll experience more problems. But if price is the most important thing, that's a really good model for you to consider. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say good things and bad things about each model, including mine. And my model is something like, we're not going to ask you to make any concessions except one. You're going to have to pay more. If you pay more, you won't have to make any other concessions. But paying more is a concession. And it means I have to spend more than I'm spending right now. And then there's a couple models in the middle. So one might be like a scaled up low price where they have a little bit better service and better solutions available. And then you have one where we would just call it a solution cell where you get the tangible results but not the strategic outcomes that you really want. And when you learn how to do this and you can just think about the different models in your, in your particular industry, what's good about them. You have to start with what's good Mm -hmm. because you can't start with trashing them or else you already ruined the whole strategy. So you say really good things about the model and then you say what's bad about it. And what you're doing is teaching your client how to recognize the concessions that other people won't say out loud because it's hard to go to you and go, Doug, listen, we're going to have a really good price for you, but you're going to have all kinds of problems. You're going to have no good customer service. You're basically going to be on your own. Uh, You'll probably hate us by the end of the second year. You know, they're not going to tell you any of those things because they're not going to reveal the concessions that you're making to get that low price. If you teach them that there's concessions and teach them, you should always ask what concessions you're making. Now you've armed the client to understand how to have a conversation with someone who believes that the best thing they can do is take money out of a solution. 
Right. The, the person who provides the client with education on the different models, their advantages, their challenges, and the concessions they are agreeing to is the person who is in the best position to win the client's business. So just to let people know, Chapter 12 has really great career and life advice. And uh, it even includes the importance of continuous learning. And I think that would probably resonate with a lot of uh, listeners to the Marketing Book Podcast. You write, people generally invest in people who invest in themselves. However, you cannot wait for your company, your manager, or anyone else to invest in your development. And one of the others that I really liked was one of the most debilitating mindsets a person can have is the belief that external factors are responsible for their results or their circumstances. That's under the subhead of everything is my fault. So, Anthony, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Recognize that there's information disparity between somebody who does something every day and somebody who does it occasionally. And to recognize that information disparity needs to be corrected and that you have to be the one to go and help people make good decisions and produce the better results that they need. So if they only came away with, I have to figure out how to be one up and have this information disparity so I can teach people how to get better results, I'd be thrilled with that. That's great. That's great. So what is just one thing a listener could do today, even if they haven't read the, the book, maybe they're waiting for it to arrive, that, to put in action just one of the ideas from your book? One of the things that you could do is to just sit down and think about when I sit down with a client, what are the general assumptions that they're starting with? Mm. And if you can start to just try to discern what are their starting points, then you can build the information disparity and in your insights around correcting those outdated assumptions. That's a really good starting point. That is. And we, we talked about that. It really resonated with me. Just think about what are their assumptions. And I think if you're having a good conversation with your colleagues, they're going to say, do they really think that? <laughs> yes. And it's not because they're stupid people. They're busy. They're doing something else. They don't do this all the time, just like you talked about. This might be a decision they make every 10 years, say. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? I have not yet got a copy. I have not, well, let's say I've not had one sent to me yet uh, from either Wiley or Jeb on his How to Execute a Price Increase book that's coming out in June. Oh, well, that so makes two of I'm us. I'm looking forward to that one. Not a book that's not out yet, but Andy Paul's book is the best book he's written. It's the best book he's written. It, it's a must read. It's also, I think, more personal than any of his other books. Uh, his, his humor comes through, his personality comes through that book. It's 100% worth reading. Oh, I loved it. Sell Without Selling Out. It really was so exceptionally well-written. I think when I interviewed him, I joked I, that the book was, was written even better than it needed to be. <laughs> He's just a very, very talented writer and uh, enjoyed interviewing him uh, a few weeks ago. And he mentioned this guy named Manorino. In fact, we talked a good bit about you, in that interview behind my back yes well just just uh andy and me and listeners around the world but we talked about how death to salesy and you endorsed it and anyway yeah we, we talk about anthony anarino a lot on the marketing book podcast but uh you know it's just because i'm a, a name dropper 
That's funny. So at marketingbookpodcast.com, we'll include links to everything linkable for you, dear listener. And we're going to include uh, all the books that have been mentioned and Anthony's site and his uh, LinkedIn profile and his Twitter account. And now a word to you, dear listener. I want to ask you a big favor. Please reach out in some way to Anthony and congratulate him on this phenomenal book and thank him for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Send a message on LinkedIn or Twitter or or go to his website and uh, subscribe to his newsletter. Guests on the show have told me how much they enjoy, seriously, hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners and not just because Marketing Book Podcast listeners are so unbelievably good looking. And if you are listening on your smartphone and you have subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcast, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Closing quote from page 209, a person who is one down will stay one down until they take the actions necessary to become one up. Fortunately, the time and effort you invest in developing yourself and your approach is largely within your control. If you're ready to acquire the knowledge, experience, and understanding that will let you offer your counsel, your advice, and your recommendations, this will help you get started. The book is Elite Sales Strategies, A Guide to Being One-Up, Creating Value, and Becoming Truly Consultative. The author is Anthony Anarino. Anthony, thank you very much for joining us again on the Marketing Book Podcast. I'll look forward to seeing you again in September. Let's do it. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune.